Okay, so I know you guys, most of you guys know me at least a little bit, but in case you didn't know, I'm a photographer. That's kind of what I do for work. And about every other year, I try to do some sort of educational development for photography. Like I'll go to some sort of conference or a mentorship, um, something where I can kind of hone my craft and get better as a photographer. So a couple of years ago, I was kind of in this creative rut, and I was struggling with photography, and I just felt like I didn't even want to do it anymore. Like I, I just wanted to quit. And so I was thinking, okay, I need to do something, some sort of a workshop that's going to help me figure out what's going on. And there was this photographer in Texas who I really loved her work. I just was always drawn to it. She was just really um, artistic, and I just wanted to learn from her, and she was putting on a workshop. And when she advertised it, kind of the way that she did that was she said, hey, we're going to really dig deep. We're going to dig deep in this workshop, and we're going to see what your creative blocks are, how to break through those creative blocks, and be able to just really grow in your artistic ability. And I was like, that's exactly what I need. Like, I need something that's going to help me just to uncover why I'm having these creative blocks. I need to dig deep. So I go to this workshop. And it was so fun. I mean, we were staying at this amazing place down in Austin. I think it's called Green Acres. It's got, like, it's kind of glamping where they have yurts and they've got a Spartan and an Airstream and all of it's been done in this super bohemian style. And she had hired all sorts of models to come in and we did all these styled shoots. And then she, like, walked us through different editing techniques and it was super fun. We loved it. I got to know other photographers. And then at one point during the thing, um, a girl leans over to me, and she's like, hey, this is great, but I don't feel like we're digging deep, like she said. Like, we're just doing the same stuff that you do at every one of these. Like, we haven't talked at all about our creative process or creative ruts. And I was like, yeah, you're right. Like, this is just like every other photography workshop. And the whole time, she kept saying, guys, we're going to dig deep this weekend. But we never, ever did. Like, that just it was something she said, but we didn't actually do it. And my fear is that when we do Bible studies like this, we kind of do the same thing. We learn a lot of information, but we don't do the hard work of really digging deep at the end and applying what we've learned to our life and letting it transform us and letting the Holy Spirit make those truths take root in our heart and kind of peel back the layers and figure out what through this study am I knowing that I need to now repent of? What are the ways that I don't look like Jesus, that I need to come to him and ask him to change my heart? So kind of my desire for tonight is that we're going to do that. I'm going to walk us through what does it look like to take it to the next level and actually dig deep. We're going to look at what happens when we take all this knowledge that we've learned and try to dive in and say, okay, now what does it look like when I really do the hard work of looking internally and applying it in a much deeper way? So our text for today as we do that is Hosea 14.9. It's the very last verse in the whole book. So go ahead and turn with me there. It says, whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them, but transgressors will stumble in them. So we see in this verse that we're to understand, we're to know, and we're to walk in all of the things that we have learned in Hosea. That's what Hosea is charging us with here. So in other words... We're to have good comprehension of the text. We're to, we're to understand it, okay? We're to know and discern what it means. We're to have an understanding of the meaning of the text. And then we are to walk in it. We're to do it. We're to apply it to our lives. Do you see how this looks just like the study method we've been using? 
to have comprehension and understanding of what it means and then be able to apply it to our life. So if we don't do this last step, the step of application, we're not really completing the process where it really changes and transforms us. Now we've spent the majority of our study really making sure that we understand and know what the book is about, right? Most of our homework, most of our teaching has been built around the comprehension and, and interpretation part of the text. So now that we've put in a lot of work there, we can give adequate attention of the question, how should this change me? So that we can, as this verse instructs us, walk in the ways of the Lord. We talked back in week one about application, about how we like to jump straight there and that when we do that, we have two different pitfalls we fall into. We either A, have a shallow application, or B, completely misapply the text. And I think both of those can happen when we study the book of Hosea. I think the way that people tend to apply Hosea shallowly is something we kind of talked about in week one, where maybe we look at just the easy parts of the book. Maybe we look at just those first three chapters. And so when we do that, we kind of run the risk of saying, okay, well, if I'm applying Hosea to my life, then I just need to just know how much God loves me. I need to know that he loves me even when I sin. And, you know, that's true. That is very true. That is a true application. But I hope that, and it probably makes you feel really warm and fuzzy, but I hope that now after studying the whole text, we're protected against stopping there because we see that that barely scratches the surface of what Hosea is trying to produce in us, Okay. I think it can also make us say, well, I need to just know and realize that God is grieved by my sin the same way that a spouse would be grieved by unfaithfulness in their marriage. And yes, that is a true application. But again, it barely scratches the surface. There is so much more to the book. So I think that we have done a lot of work that's going to help protect us from those shallow applications. I think people often misapply Hosea as well. Um, we've seen that it's a very judgment-heavy book. There is a lot of judgment in the book of Hosea. And all of that judgment centers around their sin. They are getting punished for their sins. So what can happen is people can look at the book of Hosea and think, well, gosh, they were being punished by having infertility. Well, I've been going through infertility. What sin did I do that God's punishing me for? And I hope that it's clear from our deep study of the text that that is a misinterpretation, that is a misapplication of what the text is telling us. Because we know from studying it that Israel was in a different covenant than we are. And the rules of that covenant don't apply to us. So for Israel, it was spelled out in their covenant, if you are unfaithful, this is what will happen. So it was clear that when they faced these judgments, that it was in response to their unfaithfulness. We are not in that same covenant. We have a new covenant. So when we are in Christ, when we sin, we're not met with punishment. That punishment has been paid for by Christ. And so we are met with grace and forgiveness, okay? So I hope that you can see that studying this text deeply is hopefully protecting us from these kind of misapplications of the text. So we've done the work to protect us from this. We've done the work to protect us from shallow application and from misapplication. So let's now see what it looks like to start to dig a bit deeper. And let's use our new and vast comprehension of the text to actually really dig deep and see how much richer our application can be. To do that, I want us to first look at why these false gods and these pagan gods and idols were so attractive. Because, I mean, when we look at this and when we read this, it kind of seems a little ridiculous to us. I know it does to me. I look at Israel and I think, 
Look at what God just did for you. He frees you from slavery to Egypt that you had been in for hundreds of years. He literally parted the Red Sea so that you could escape people who were trying to capture you. And 40 years later, you're choosing an idol that you carved out of wood. It seems insane. So we have to ask ourselves, why? What was so attractive about these false idols that caused them to immediately turn to them as soon as they entered the promised land? So think about it for a minute, about how these false gods and these false idols worked. The way that it happened was if people performed certain ceremonies or did certain rituals or worshipped certain ways, then the false idol would deliver whatever that person wanted them to do. So it kind of went like this. Well, I want really fruitful lands. Oh, all I have to do for fruitful lands is I have to go and do this certain ritual and this cert- I have to go get a temple prostitute or whatever it is, and then this false god is going to give me what I want. I want prosperity. Oh, well, this false god promises that to me, and all I have to do is X, Y, and Z, and then this false god is going to give it to me. So you just do the rituals, you follow the rules, and then that god will do for you what you want them to do. So really, by worshiping these false gods, what they were doing was they were putting their lives back into their own hands where they could call the shots. Because who's in control in this scenario? They were in control. Israel was. These were gods that they could control. Not gods whose control they trusted, but gods that they could control. They were taking the reins back into their own hand. Who served who with these pagan gods? These pagan gods served Israel, not the other way around. So it kind of fed into their self-serving nature there. So they had a choice. They're entering this promised land, and they could trust a sovereign God who is in control of everything and just trust in faith that that God is going to help them survive and flourish. Or they could take the reins back into their own hands, assume control themselves, and they could find lesser gods who could be manipulated or controlled. And this underlying issue of what they were trying to do is not unique to them, okay? Look with me for a minute at Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. We're going to see that this is not a one-time situation. This says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you surely shall not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. So we see here that the heart motive behind the very first sin, the fall of mankind, was the desire to be like God. And I don't mean in a good way of like, I just want to be holy like God. I just want to be godly in the way that God wants me to be. That's not what's happening. They wanted to be like God in ways that only God is supposed to be like God. There's certain things that are for God alone that are not for us to try to take control over, okay? So we see that with the garden, Adam and Eve, they wanted to be like God in that they wanted to be all-knowing. They wanted to have the ultimate knowledge of good and evil like what God had. 
We see this all throughout scripture. We see the Tower of Babel as another example where they build this really great and majestic tower to the skies, to the heavens, because they want to be like God. They want to be great. They want to be majestic like God. And now we're seeing Israel wants to be like God and that they want to have the control of their own lives and destiny. They want to be all controlling like God instead of trusting in God's perfect control. So we can see that it was less about the wooden object they're worshiping, and it's more about taking the reins back for them. They wanted something that they could manipulate and control, not someone they had to trust and follow. Now, we mentioned throughout the study that even the way that they were worshiping Yahweh, like the God of the Bible, and the ways that they you know, were originally told to and they were still kind of doing, that those were not acceptable to God anymore. We saw a text that said, even though you offer sacrifices to me, I will not accept them. A lot of commentators said that the reason that they were not acceptable is because Israel started to treat God the same way they were treating these pagan idols. They were starting to treat God as someone to control and manipulate. So they came to these sacrifices with this heart attitude of, okay, I did my sacrifice, God, now you got to do for me what I want you to do. So it wasn't this posture of humility and devotion to the Lord, but it was an attempt to manipulate and control the Lord the same way that they operated with these idols. And that was why their worship was not um, acceptable anymore. Now, before we're too hard on Israel, I want you to put yourself in their shoes for a minute. Because remember, they had spent 40 years in the wilderness trusting in God for sustenance and for provision. And now they're coming to a land that they're unfamiliar with. And for their survival, they're going to have to learn how to farm. Typically in a farming community, people grow up learning that skill. They learn how to farm from the time they're little because their parents are already doing it. Well, when you spend 40 years in the wilderness, I can imagine that they come into Israel and there's a whole generation of people that I'm guessing had not learned how to farm. And now they know they're in a strange land that they're unfamiliar with, surrounded by all of these nations that are probably a little bit scary and intimidating, and they know that to survive, they have to be able to successfully farm this land, which is a skill that they have not learned. So they're in a pretty vulnerable position, and this is their lives we're talking about that are at stake. So they kind of have two choices here. They can either continue to trust God that he is going to provide in a situation that just seems very, very scary to them and challenging, or they can grasp at some illusion of control that they might be able to ensure the land's prosperity themselves. That would be super tempting, okay? So we don't want to jump and be too hard on them because it would be, it'd be a really, really hard thing to turn down. Um, I don't know about you, but when we start to talk about it this way, this feels a whole lot more relatable to me. Because I don't wake up in the morning and worry that I'm going to carve a cow out of wood and start worshiping it. I just don't worry about that. And I don't worry that someday that I'm going to start seeking out temple prostitutes or sacrificing my children. This is, a compl- this is not the world I live in. That's not the world any of us live in. So it's easy to think, I don't relate to Israel at all, and I would never do what they do. But when we think about it this way, we start to think, well, yeah, I would would never do those external things, but I do find myself constantly looking to that which I can control instead of trusting in God's perfect control. I do find myself subtly trying to manipulate God into him doing what I want him to do, um, and I do the right thing so that he maybe owes me or so that he'll reward me. I do find myself constantly trying to take back the reins of my life instead of trusting God as my Lord, the one I'm subject to and the one that I trust to lead and guide me. 
so I'm a lot more like Israel. We are all a lot more like Israel than maybe we think when we look at their situation. So we know idol worship looks very different for us than it did for them. What does it look like for us then? Now, remember a few weeks ago, we talked about how Israel, they had external sins that stemmed from internal desires. And the desires weren't always bad. Those desires were good, and they were supposed to be met by God. Well, in the same way, we have external sins that stem from internal desires. And if we want to know what our idols are, what our bales are, if you will, we can use the same formula that we identified for Israel. We can ask, what are the deep desires of my heart And what things do I look to other than God to fulfill those desires? I'm going to say that again because I want you to dwell on this over the next few weeks because this is the question that is going to help you to do the hard work of digging deep, okay? What are the deep desires of my heart? And what things do I look to other than God to fulfill those desires? So I know that it's going to take some time for you to process and think through that. So I'm going to walk through a lot of things to help you along the way, okay? Um, The first thing that we're going to talk through is Tim Keller. He's an author and a pastor who's um, anything that you can read by him is amazing. And he has a really helpful tool that he calls the four heart idols. Um, But I'm going to kind of more word it as the four heart desires just to help fit into that. It's just semantics. I'm not changing his meaning or anything. But he kind of talks about how all sin... Um, Most of the time, when you kind of peel back enough layers, it stems from one of four heart um, idols or desires of our heart. And those four, I'll say them twice so you can write them down, are comfort, approval, control, and power. I'm going to say those one more time. And you can always listen to this. If you miss something, you can listen to the podcast. Comfort, approval, control, and power. So how this plays out is four people can be struggling with the same outer sin, but they can be doing it from different heart desires. So we're going to take, for example, the sin of overworking. Now, it's good to be a good worker and a hard worker, but we can take that to a sinful place when we work obsessively and we neglect other important areas of our life because we're obsessively working and ignoring our families, ignoring our responsibilities as a spouse or a parent. Four people can be doing this. One of them can be doing it because they have a huge desire for comfort. And they know that that desire can be met by making a lot of money, being able to buy all the things, having a nice cozy house, being sheltered, like being able to afford all the things that would bring all the comforts of the world. So they could be looking to that um, overworking as basically what's going to deliver the comfort to them. Another person could be doing the same outer sin, but they could be doing it because they have a huge approval, need for approval. And so they're saying, I want the attaboys. I want my boss to say, great job. I want people around me to be like, wow, they are so successful. They are so good at what they do. So we let that need drive us to overwork. Another person could be doing it because they have a huge need for control, and nobody else can do it right. They have to do it all. They're not going to delegate anything. They're not going to work with a team because they are the only ones who can do it right, so they have to work themselves into the ground because they don't trust anybody else because their need for control is so high. And other people could overwork because of a desire for power, and they're not going to quit until they are the CEO or they are at the top of whatever business. So you see, like, We can have different motives and different motivations and desires that drive us to the same sin. So you can't really tackle the outer sin until you identify what's underneath it, until you identify what desire of my heart am I trying to meet by this sin. 
So let's see what happens when we start to plug these idols into our formula that we have identified in Hosea. Because in the same way that the heart desires of Israel were not always bad, they were just supposed to be met by God, these heart desires are the same way. Because we know that God promises to be our comforter. So when we have a desire for comfort, that is a desire that God promises to meet. He is our comforter. But where we get into trouble is when we say, was when we say, no, God, your comfort's not enough for me. I need the comfort that this over here can bring me, and it's going to satisfy me more than how you satisfy me. Or when we say approval, our need for approval is met because what Jesus did on the cross makes God look at us with full approval. He looks at us, and he proves of us completely. But we get into trouble when we say, you know, I don't feel good enough about God approving of me. That's not enough to meet my need for approval. I need to be approved of by these people over here, too. Same for control. It's okay to want things to be in order and control and done well. We serve a God who has perfect control over everything. So when we are in relationship with him, we know that he has perfect control, so we don't have to. We get into trouble when we say, God, your control is not good enough. I need to do it. Okay, power is the same way. We serve a God who is all-powerful. He created the entire universe. Nothing is more powerful than God. Yet we like to say, God, I don't, I'm not satisfied with your power and my relationship with you. I need the power for myself. So you can see that the desires aren't sinful in and of themselves when we are looking to God to meet them. But what we tend to do is we tend to say, no, I want this to meet that desire of my heart, this thing over here. We make an idol out of this thing over here, and then we serve that idol. And that usually is where the sin comes from, okay? So let's start plugging this in. Um, let's go ahead and start with the desire for approval. If you want to know where we tend to find the most approval, just look at Instagram because Instagram is like an approval junkie's dream. You get like these instant likes and comments. It's like an instant pat on the back. I approve of you because your post was so great. And so not to say that anytime you post, you're an you have an approval idol, but I think it's a little telling when we see what shows up most often on Instagram feeds. I think we see that people post a lot of things about their bodies or their appearance. People post a lot about their homes and how they decorate. People post a lot about these adventures in the, that they take and look how fun and adventurous my life is. Um, they post a lot about how they have made these amazing crafts and activities for their kids to do and their kids are perfectly well dressed while they do it with a smile on their face, which is not real life. Um, and so basically, I think, again, you can post these things without having them be your idols. But I think that there is maybe something to the fact that they're so dominant on Instagram feeds that there is probably some idolatry in there. So let's think about this, uh, this desire for approval. Maybe my heart desire is for approval. But instead of looking to God, I say, God, I don't feel satisfied enough by the fact that you approve of me. I need the approval of others, and the way that I'm going to get that is by looking a certain way. So I'm going to make an idol out of my appearance, okay? So my appearance is now the idol. I know that I want to look beautiful, put together, stylish, whatever it is that people are going to look at me and instantly approve of me because of what they see first, okay? So now I'm going to serve that idol of my appearance by doing things like um, excessively working out beyond a healthy point, by spending way too much money on clothes to the detriment of other areas that I should be responsibly budgeting, by controlling my eating so much so that I can control the way that I look um, to the point that I'm dieting, maybe even to the point of an eating disorder. Now, do you see 
all of these things are ways that I can control how I look. I'm taking the reins into my own hands. I can control my appearance to an extent by the way that I eat, exercise, and dress. So now I am taking the reins into my own hands to ensure that I'm going to get the approval that I desire. So do you see how the formula plays out there? What about um, comfort? Maybe I have this desire for comfort, and God promises to be my comforter, but I say, no, God, your comfort's not enough. I really need financial security. That's what's going to bring me the comfort that I need. I need financial security and nice things um, so that I don't ever, I'm never lacking what I need or want. So now financial security is the idol. I'm going to serve that idol by overworking, by not being generous, by doing um, other things that just basically um, my life will center around this idea of financial security. And so the, it's not bad to want financial security, but when it becomes the idol that you are serving and trusting to meet that comfort idol, that's when it crosses the line of idolatry, okay? Um, you could even go the opposite direction. Maybe for comfort to you means leisure. Like for me, comfort means I don't never need to work a day in my life. And so now I'm going to serve that idol for comfort by being flaky. And I'm not going to go to any like commitment that doesn't feel good in the moment because that challenges my comfort idol. And I'm going to flake out on jobs and I'm going to not do anything that doesn't feel 100% fulfilling 100% of the time. Because I am trying to control this idol of leisure over here because I'm trusting it to bring me comfort. So do you see we make these idols that we think are going to give us the desires of our hearts because we're not believing that God is going to meet the desires of our hearts. I challenged myself a lot this week to do the hard work myself because I'm not going to ask you to do something that I'm not going to do. And I challenge myself to dig deep and ask, okay, what is it for me right now? Because it's going to change throughout your life, or maybe not. Maybe you'll have the same thing that you struggle with for years. I mean, I mean that happens a lot of times. But um, for me, in this particular season, I was thinking a lot this week, what is the desire of my heart that I'm feeling, and how am I not looking to God to have it met? And the heart desire that kept coming up for me um, was significance. Now, this isn't one of Keller's four, four, but I think that there's more. Those are just really, that's a good comprehensive list, but there are others. So for me, it was significance. Um, I turned 40 this week. My 40th birthday is on Friday, and I'm not going to lie, the midlife crisis has come on strong this year for me. Um, I felt a pretty deep need for my life to matter um, and to be significant in my time on earth. And I don't know why there's something for me about turning 40 that makes me really aware of a clock that I don't just have all the years in the world to leave my mark. Um, I know that my life is significant because of what Christ has done on the cross for me. I know that my significance is found in Christ. But I think for me, I've made an idol of this idea that I need to do something big. Like, I need to do something big. I need to change the world. So what I'm effectively do is, doing is I'm saying, Jesus, what you did wasn't big enough. I need to do something big. Jesus, you didn't change the world enough. I need to change the world. And so then I start to believe this lie, and I make this idol, and then I start to serve the idol by neglecting things in my life that are important but that don't immediately feed this idol of doing something big, the mundane, everyday parenting, being a good wife, like all that stuff, it feels like it gets in the way of me being able to do something big with my life. So do you see, it's not bad to want to leave a mark on the world. That's not bad. What's bad is when it starts to produce sin because you are feeding an idol. It's kind of, you kind of know in your heart when you have crossed a line and something becomes a little bit too important and you have 
kind of effectively said in your heart, this isn't just important to me now, it is ultimate because what God's promised me isn't good enough, I need this instead. So again, it's not always all bad, but you cross a line or it becomes an idol. <clears throat> so when we start looking at it this way, and we start identifying what are the heart desires that we aren't trusting that God can meet, whether it's comfort, approval, power, control, or something else, um, it becomes apparent pretty quickly that we are no different than Israel because like Israel, our actions reveal the areas that we believe that God is not enough. So I'm going to ask you, what are the deepest desires of your heart and how has God promised to meet that desire? And what are you looking to instead? How are you taking the reins back into your own hands and looking to something that you can control to make sure that you're able to get those deep desires of your heart? And then after you ask that question, I want you to ask it again. Because the first time, you're probably going to answer it in a way that feels safe and not scary. And you're probably going to say something that maybe you heard somebody else say or that feels like a generic thing that anybody would struggle with. So I want you to do it again. That's a practice round. I want you to do it again and actually do the hard work of digging deep and admitting the things, the ugly truths that you are not trusting God about. If you're having trouble figuring out what your idols are, one way to identify them is by noticing when they are threatened. We saw that for Israel, God dealt with both their outer sin and their inner sin. And he kind of just took it all away. He took away the outer things they were worshiping, and he took away the inner things they were desiring. He just stripped it all, okay? I think that God similarly deals with our outer sin as well as our inner sin as well. I think that a lot of times when we start to sin outwardly, it's because some inner desire, some inner heart idol has been threatened. We learned in the James' study that God often uses suffering to point us back to him. And we talked a lot in that study that suffering doesn't have to be just the big, hard things in our life. It's really anything that kind of brings about frustration or discomfort. Like it can be even the little things too because that's the everyday stuff, okay? Um, and so I think that like maybe a lot of times suffering reveals our idols and it's a way that God deals with those heart-level idols in our lives. Maybe you have a roommate who's driving you crazy. Well, maybe the reason they're driving you crazy is because they're bumping up against your comfort idol. Maybe your kids are really pushing your buttons. Well, maybe the reason they're pushing your buttons and causing you to be short and snappy is because they're rubbing up against your control idol. Maybe you're really, really frustrated because of your financial situation and it is causing you to be stressed out and short with people. Well, maybe the reason that you are frustrated is because that financial burden is rubbing against your comfort idol. You know, there's, there's going to be some idol being rubbed against that is producing that response within you. So I think that a lot of times when we look at when something gets threatened or taken away a little bit or the threat of it being taken away and we start to well up, that's a good indicator that maybe there's an idol getting rubbed up against that I didn't realize that I had. I remember a fight one time that me and Jeremy were having that um, it had been a fight we had come to many, many times. And he goes very, very kindly, like, because we were, he, you know, he was trying to help me. He goes, could this be like a power idol? And I go, no, I don't struggle with power. Oh, my gosh, I struggle with power. Like, it was like a light bulb went off of, like, the I didn't know until it produced all this anger in me that, I, yeah, I did have a power idol. I just didn't really know about it. So I think we can be aware of the things that are causing us frustration or the temptation to sin because it's rubbing against our idol. <clears throat> what does this look like in real life? Okay, let's say I'm at a grocery store and my kid throws himself on the floor and is throwing a tantrum. 
Well, that tantrum is going to really strongly run against my desire for approval. I might in that moment believe that the judgment from the people around me is more important than the approval I have in Christ because I have a deep desire in my heart for approval. And instead of believing that God meets that need um, by approving of me fully in Christ, I'm going to look to the approval of these people around me, and I'm going to notice the icy stare of that lady down there who's thinking in her mind, I would never let my kid do that. And I'm going to notice that teenage kid who's stalking the shelf and rolling his eyes while he listens to his iPod. I'm going to notice that, and then I have a choice. I can either say, God, I am realizing that I am trusting too much in what these people think of me, and I, I'm gonna, I, if I'm not careful, I'm gonna let this cause me to sin. I'm gonna be too harsh with my kid. I'm not gonna be understanding of their um, limitations as a toddler. I'm gonna be, I'm gonna grab their arm and yank them out of the store and drag them out and yell at them and make them feel shamed when they are just two or three and don't know how to, how to do better yet. Or I can repent and say, God, forgive me for my desire right now for the approval of these people. Help me in this moment to believe that your approval is more important and help me to use this as an opportunity to grow in Christ-likeness, to be patient with my child, and to love them and help them with their big feelings in this moment and not care about what these people think. So that's kind of how this plays out in real life, how God can use situations that are uncomfortable to produce in us a response that it makes us aware of idolatry in our life and then leads us to repentance. We talked a lot in the James study about how there's two paths that suffering can lead us down. They can cause us to sin or it can cause us to look more like Jesus. And that is an everyday example of what that looks like, okay? Um, if I lean into that tantrum, it can be a way that God deals with my own inner sin. So I want you to think about whatever form of suffering, however big or small, that you're experiencing right now and ask yourself, what idol is getting rubbed up against that is causing this experience to tempt me to sin? Dig deep and be honest. We don't like to admit that we have idolatry in our lives, but I promise you every one of us in here does, and there's no shame in that. The only tragedy is if we ignore it, pretend it doesn't exist, and then never deal with it, okay? Part of maturity in Christ is being aware of our downfalls, of our shortcomings, of our idolatry, and dealing with it, repenting, and this is how we do that. One way that God shows his goodness to us is that even when we're struggling with idolatry, God still a lot of times blesses us with those desires of our hearts. Um, we saw that with Israel, things were going pretty well with them for hundreds of years. And so they thought, wow, these idols are really coming through. Like this land really is prospering because of what we're doing. And so they mistakenly thought that these blessings, that these desires of their hearts were getting met by the idols. And God says in Hosea, he says, it was me all along who was giving you the desires of your hearts. So one more way we can dig deep is to ask the questions, what are the things that God has done for us or is currently doing for us that we tend to attribute to someone or something else? Do we pridefully take all the credit for our good grades because of how hard we work and our obsessive study habits? Or do we acknowledge in our hearts with humility that God gave us the capability to take in this information, that God put us on a track to get us to where we are, and that God created us to where we are able to study well? Do we look pridefully at our family and how well-behaved our kids are and give ourselves a pat on the back and think it's all because we have been doing all the right things? Or do we realize that every kid is just created and wired differently? Like I heard one mom say, there's not so much good moms and bad moms as there is easy kids and difficult kids. And that's always really stuck with me because it's easy sometimes to pat myself on the back when Jax asks how I want him to. 
when really what I should be doing is saying, thank you, Lord, for how you have knit my son together. I know that my family dynamic that God has woven together is different from this family over here. So there's no reason for me to judge myself as either inferior or superior to anybody else because I don't know how God has knit those kids. I'm not the one who knit kids together in the womb. God is the one who does that. And so we need to be able to give and attribute to God the ways that he is answering those desires of our heart and the ways that we obviously, like a lot of times, think that it's all because of what we have been doing. Um, Do we tend to look at people who are in poverty or maybe even people who struggle with substance abuse and think, I would never do that, while not even acknowledging the fact that God God created certain situations for us and opportunities for us that that person may not have had. And they may have had challenges in their life that we might not have had. And so we tend to think that the good things that happen are because all these idols I'm looking to, all these things that I'm controlling, they're really working out for me. When really we need to sit back with humility and acknowledge that these good things in our life is really all gifts from God. And we need to be thankful for what he is doing and constantly being aware that he is the giver of all good things. So if there is anything good in my life, I need to be thanking God for it because it's not because of me. It's not because of what I'm doing. Yes, we do have responsibilities that God gives us, but ultimately good things in our life are always a gift from him. So in what areas am I not acknowledging God and giving the credit to myself or to someone or something else? So as we've been walking through all this, I hope you're seeing more and more that we are much more like Israel than we care to think. But there is one very big difference between us and Israel, though. And that difference is that our covenant is not the same as theirs. They were giving a conditional covenant, but we're given an unconditional one. And their hearts, they battled hearts that didn't want to trust in God, and we do too. But part of the gift of our covenant is that we have the Holy Spirit that helps us battle that flesh, okay? They didn't have the Holy Spirit in the same form, the same, um, they didn't have the same relationship to the Holy Spirit in that covenant that we do in this covenant. It related to them differently. And so one thing I want you to also really think about is do you know where you would be without the Holy Spirit? I mean, like really know. Look at Israel because that is where you would be. We don't have hearts like Israel that naturally want to seek and trust God. That's just not humanity. Our hearts do not naturally want to seek and trust God. What we have is called the flesh. And the flesh is self-seeking and it's self-reliance. So in Israel, we have a pretty good picture of where the flesh takes us. We saw that in the book of Hosea. So I want you to ask yourself, How do we view and relate to the Holy Spirit in our own lives? We see throughout the New Testament, time and time again, it talks about how the Spirit wages war within our flesh, with our flesh. I want you to ask, who is winning that war in your heart? Are you even aware of it? Do you have these moments where you're aware of the Holy Spirit working in and through you? Galatians 5, 16 and 17 says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. So we see in Hosea that we're a part of the future blessings. The original audience, they got all the curses. They got all the judgments. They were all a part of that original, co- that first covenant. 
we're a part of the covenant that it alludes to that's coming in the future that gets all of these future blessings, this covenant that Hosea prophecies about. And a part of that new covenant is that we are given this incredible gift of the Holy Spirit that dwells inside of our hearts. I want you to dig deep and ask yourself, do you experience the work of the Holy Spirit working both in you and through you? Do you experience the Holy Spirit conforming you into the image of Christ, revealing truths to you, convicting you of sin? Do you experience the Holy Spirit working through you to do what God is doing in this world, in the lives of other people? Do you feel it when your flesh is waging war with the Spirit? Is your flesh winning, or are you walking by the Spirit? I want you to ask God how you can experience a greater working of the Holy Spirit in your life. Guys, we could go on. There is so much application for us in the book of Hosea. But I hope that you're seeing that this kind of deep application that we have been talking about tonight, it only comes with deep study first. We never would have gotten here without all the deep study and the hard work that we put in first. Israel effectively said that God was not their God. They said it repeatedly with their actions. God was not their God. We saw in Hosea chapter 2, verse 23, it said that in the new covenant, the covenant that we are in right now, that if we are in Christ, we are a part of, that God's people are going to say, thou art my God. And to say that is to submit to his rule in our lives, is to give him the reins and to trust that he can meet the desires of our hearts in ways that nothing else can. So I want you to dig deep. And ask yourself, can I truly say to God, thou art my God? And when I say that, do I really mean it? Do I mean it in the way that everything we've talked about tonight would indicate that I mean it? And if not, if you can't say that and mean it, come to the Lord right now and ask him to change your heart so that you do. Let's pray. Oh, God, thank you. Thank you for the book of Hosea, and thank you for how deeply it can transform and change us if we let it. God, I thank you for your Holy Spirit. What a gift that is, and I think that we go through life not even thinking about it sometimes and not even realizing what we have. And so, God, I thank you. I thank you for how gracious you are to us, that while we were yet sinners, while we were just like Israel turning from you time and time again, Christ died for us so that we could be in right relationship with you and have your Holy Spirit. I pray that as we leave here, we would do the hard work of examining our lives and asking, what are the ways that I am trusting that other things can meet the desires of my heart? What are the ways that I am not believing that you can? I pray that we would leave here pressing ourselves to say, do I really mean it when I say thou art my God? Am I giving you the reins? Do I trust you with that? Or am I effectively being my own God? God, I pray for anybody in here who maybe is realizing that they have never, ever trusted you as their Lord. I pray that they would do that tonight and that they would submit their lives to you and they would give you the reins, Lord. I pray that people would leave here changed on every level and that you would transform us even more and more as we go on and study other books, that you would continue to bring forward the truths that we found in Hosea. Show us how they apply in so many ways and that it doesn't end here, Lord. I pray that this would just be the jumping off point. We love you so much. It's in your name we pray. Amen.